0: It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror.
1: Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did.
0: I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow
1: human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're going to overcome this. And I think we
0: are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech.
1: Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore together how democracy can overcome extremism in a challenging new era. We are sitting down with folks who have dealt with extremism firsthand mayors, prosecutors, faith leaders, activists, journalists. Together, their stories provide important clues to how democracy can and must rise to this challenge. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Jonathan Greenblatt is the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, also known as the ADL, which is an organization that was founded to combat anti-Semitism, but that today has become a leading civil rights organization against bigotry of all forms. It should be stated at the outset that the ADL is the home of this podcast. As you will hear, Jonathan came from the tech sector to the ADL, and bringing with him a new understanding of technology and a new focus on innovation to a venerated civil rights organization, What I found most interesting in this conversation is the role the ADL has as a civic organization. Civic organizations like the ADL, whether associations or nonprofits or neighborhood organizations, they're different from businesses or government. They belong to what we call civil society. And they have a special role for that reason in a democracy. As you'll hear in this interview, in this time of increased extremism, civic organizations like the ADL can do incredibly important work in strengthening what you might call democracy's immune system. Those are the democratic values and the institutions, the the relationships, the society itself that protects the body politic from the disease of extremism. You know, my first contact with the ADL as the mayor of Charlottesville was when I became the, the brunt of a wave of vicious anti-Semitic trolling attacks after the alt-right first came to Charlottesville in May of 2017. And all these people and I got a call from the ADL and they set up a phone call immediately. And then we had, I think, another call and they were, they were providing resources and analysis and facts and guidance and connected me with the FBI to talk about potentially concerning threats. And it was a hugely valuable connection and it felt very tailored to what I was going through and, and very focused on providing some resources, reassurance, best practices, alliances, very much of the sort that we're talking about in this project.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, yeah, I think part of what ADL does is when there's an act of hate, when there's a campaign of intimidation, we show up, hmm. we <laughs> speak out, Right. And we try to stay strong, and uh, that's much of uh, our focus. I'm glad to hear that you found ADL's engagement useful.
1: What brought you to the ADL? It's an organization with a long history, and you brought a, a kind of unusual background to it. Can you tell us about your path to the ADL?
0: Sure. I've been serving as CEO of ADL for just about four years. Most previous to this job, I was serving in the West Wing, where I worked for President Obama and ran the Office of Social Innovation. The opportunity to come to ADL came via a headhunter who reached out to me while I was again working for the president and said, you know, would you be interested in this role? And, you know, when I got the call, thought it was interesting. I mean, I never worked in the Jewish community before. ADL is a vaunted civil rights organization. I'm not even a lawyer. So I thought, you know, I don't know if I'm the best person for the job, but the next CEO of ADL should be thinking about issues like innovation and technology and engaging millennials and thinking more global and, and maybe just maybe, you know, have an impact on the process. Because even if I wasn't the right person for the job, and I again, I really wasn't sure that I was, I thought the new CEO should be thinking this way. And I knew that its mission had always been of realizing that in America, the best way to defend the Jewish people was to stand up for all marginalized communities, Hmm. which is why people at ADL over the years. And I knew a little bit about this, that they'd marched for civil rights, that they would advocated for immigration reform, that they had stood square and with unflinching for, again, other marginalized communities. So I thought, an organization like that needs to be positioned for the 21st century. I'll take the meeting because maybe I can help them think about what that might look like. And lo and behold, they ended up taking the job.
1: So in this podcast, we are exploring how institutions of all stripes in a democracy can overcome extremism. What's the argument for impact? What is a large nonprofit like the ADL? How how does it impact American society? How does it
0: strengthen democracy? How does it put extremism on its heels? So ADL does advocacy, education, and law enforcement. Number one, we do advocacy. We try to change laws in order to, again, protect the Jewish people and other marginalized communities to stand up for the First Amendment and the freedoms enshrined in it. So whether it's lobbying for legislation, whether it's working through the courts, we are very focused on using advocacy to, again, ensure that all people are adequately protected in our society. Number two, we use education. Long ago, the management of ADL realized that if you really want to stop hate, you have to change hearts and minds. Today, ADL is one of the largest providers in the United States of anti-bias, anti-bullying, anti-hate content in schools. Reach about a million and a half school children every year, which, again, is all focused on fighting hate. Not anti, just anti-Semitism, but racism, homophobia, xenophobia, anti-Muslim bias, misogyny. It's all about universalism. And then thirdly, in addition to the advocacy work and the education work, we do law enforcement. So we track hate crimes and we have a whole research unit, our Center on Extremism, which investigates the extremists and tracks hate. And then we train law enforcement. We are literally the largest trainer of law enforcement in America on issues of extremism and hate. We train like 15,000 police officers or law enforcement officers every year. So there's a little bit of a value chain there. And we're a retail operation, Mike. We have 25 regional offices across the country. We show up on the ground, in schools, in precincts, in city halls, in town councils, in state houses, in state legislatures, and the halls of Congress and in front of the Supreme Court to create a society where there's no place for hate. After
1: understanding Jonathan's background and that of the ADL, we got to a topic that particularly interested me, asking Jonathan about where he was when the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville
0: and what came next. Unite the Right rally, it played out on a Saturday, but in fact, people had started to stream into Charlottesville early in the week and on Friday night. There was kind of a, an initial march, if you will, by many of the folks who descended on the town. Now we knew they were coming to Charlottesville right. because we track these extremists and we track them in their public platforms and in their, the other places where they dialogue and engage. And I will say that what it turned out to be was bigger than we even thought. But that being said, my people went into the weekend monitoring the events and we had someone on the ground there in Charlottesville who was present to observe. So I went to synagogue on Saturday, which is you know the thing that I do. The call started coming in in the afternoon that, like, something really bad had, had happened and got the word that it wasn't just a march, that there had been this, the night before had been real. and I usually, you know, I don't work on Shabbat. I go down on Shabbat. I turn my phone off on Shabbat. And the call started coming in about the fact that there had been this, this car had driven into a crowd of people, and it was apparent that people had been maimed or killed. And so my people, again, on the ground, she, this woman was filing reports, and my whole organization engaged. So everything from who are the different groups, we knew who was going to be there, but who were the people who were there. As we started getting some of the initial videos and photos, identifying who those people were, sharing that with the news media, sharing that with law enforcement, writing up what we knew about the organizations, the whole organization went into kind of battle mode to try to make sense of what had happened and who were the people involved and where do we go from there.
1: My next question was about this two year period that included not only Charlottesville, but the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and the attack at the synagogue in Poway, California, and dozens of other instances of white supremacist violence as shown in the federal government's own studies and those by groups like the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center. What did Jonathan Greenblatt see as the real threat here to the country and to the world from violent, white, supremacist extremism.
0: Look, I think there is a real, sustained, and spreading threat of white nationalism. I would say that white supremacy is a global terror threat. And we can look back at major events over the past, little, even less than a decade, from Norway in 2011, mm-hmm. where 77 people were killed by a white supremacist to the shooting at the Charleston, at the uh, the AME Church, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, in 2015, where nine parishioners were killed, to the rally in Charlottesville in 2017, to the shooting at Tree of Life in 2018, to the shooting at Christ Church in 2019, to the shooting in Poway, I would say these are not outliers on a scatter plot. These are data points on a trend line, mm-hmm. and it tells us that what we already knew to be true which is white supremacy, is a violent extremist movement in this country. The data bears that out. For example, last year alone, there were 50 extremist-related murders in the United States, of which 49 of 50 were committed by people on what you might consider the extreme right end of the spectrum. But the overwhelming majority of those, nearly 80%, were white supremacists. Um, And over the past 10 years, nearly three-quarters of the extremist-related murders in the United States were committed by people on the extreme right. Again, the overwhelming majority of whom are white supremacists. And we can see, Mike, a pattern here in which these individuals are trading ideas, cross-pollinating across continents. There were European white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville. There were American white supremacists who marched just a few months later at the Poland Independence Day rally, which attracts tens of thousands of people across Europe. It's the largest white supremacist gathering that happens there every year. Many of them are using social media to spread and coordinate and engage with one another, and they share an ideology. It is anti-globalism, it is anti-democratic, it is anti-Semitic to the core. It is pro-authoritarianism, it is pro-conspiracy theory, and it is pro-violence. We worry at the ADL about the fact that this phenomenon continues to mutate, to metastasize, and to spread, and it requires all of us in positions of authority, whether we're in elected office or we're in, you know, the stations of power related to business or nonprofit or whatnot, to step forward and say we're not going to we're not going to take this. We need to work together to re-energize our democracy and to repel this kind of intolerance before it really takes hold. So that again, the the, the white blood cells of our democracy can literally beat back these this bacteria and kill this virus before it you know, contaminates the whole body politic.
1: Very powerful metaphor. I, as you were talking, I was thinking along the same lines, which is, you know, we talk about the rule of law, we talk about constitutionalism as an immune system against these forces of tyranny and authoritarianism and, and bigotry that have threatened to tear us apart from the very beginning of the country. And it strikes me that the way that you're describing the role of a organization like the ADL is almost... You know, like an, a booster for the immune system. One of those, one of those infusions that, that you take that helps these systems take it to the next level. It
0: gives them more more nutrition, more capacity. Um, it's, very, it's very, it's a very powerful role. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I think that we do have a vital role to play in terms of the value chain of preserving our democracy and of ensuring that it continues to work in the interests of all of its citizens in an equal way, in a way that moves toward better outcomes. I mean, when I worked for President Obama, he used to often invoke the phrase that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Right. I've come to believe that that isn't exactly correct. Hmm. I think the moral arc of the universe bends in the direction that to which we pull it. And so it's up to us, concerned citizens and committed activists and other people of good faith to reach up and grab the curve with both hands, and bend it toward justice, bend it toward liberty, bend it toward inclusion. Because if we don't do that, we shouldn't think that it will somehow on its own, you know, magically land in the right direction. I think the events of recent years show us that that is absolutely not the case. So it's not just about keeping our eye on the ball, Mike, it's about realizing this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. There's a phrase you hear a lot in public
1: policy circles, capacity building. The idea even if it's a little jargony is that you create a system with more resources, more capacity, that can handle a set of problems. And so I wanted to get specific with Jonathan about what capacity building really means. What exactly is it that organizations like the ADL accomplish in terms of empowering the country and its
0: leaders against extremism. What what do they do? What we know, Mike, is that extremists intentionally exploit vulnerabilities in our democratic system, just like they find ways to hack platforms right. and to push and penetrate you know, the conversation. And so we see they do it online where they've really exploited the internet and subverted social media to spread their toxins. And they did it very effectively by capitalizing on the very libertarian kind of philosophy that architected these social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter uh-huh. and YouTube and whatnot. And therefore, in ways they could never do in real life. How do we make sure the next generation of entrepreneurs and corporate executives understand these issues and don't allow their platforms, whether it's Amazon selling as we just found this week, they continue to allow third-party sellers on their platform to distribute anti-Semitic, racist, hateful materials. Wow. If you can build a business that basically reinvents the entire way that we think about commerce, from books, to music, to videos, to groceries, to furniture, literally and reshape our economy in the process, bouncing a few bigots off your platform shouldn't be that hard.
1: It makes perfect sense what you're saying, that the role that the private sector and these tech companies can take really almost surfs between the the, the so-called hard and soft sides that a public sector exactly. leads. And, and this was the lesson from the summit, which just happened at Airbnb's headquarters in San Francisco, where we had leaders who are who are really in charge of implementing what's called trust and safety and they were at platforms like Pinterest and Patreon and Eventbrite and PayPal, like companies that are really in the mix. And they what what was most striking was they all want to do the right thing. They really are parts of companies that want to make society safer from extremism at the managing board at the strategic level. It's a challenge because it's not at all clear how do you implement that on a day-to-day level and balance their needs to serve their public and avoid becoming the target of of campaigns that really could could hurt them and could spin sideways and what and what came out of it most strongly was they wanted to work together and they really needed to share best practices and have a sense of solidarity and and figure this problem out together rather than apart.
0: Yeah, I think the companies realize they they have a shared interest in getting this right. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, there are a bunch of other platforms. I mean, these issues are widespread. They're not limited to any one of them. But business has a critical role to play. And in particular, the social media platforms. I mean, literally, they've reshaped human civilization. I mean, you know, Facebook has 2.4 billion users across the planet Earth. I mean, Google has literally built an almost trillion-dollar public equity by organizing the world's information and reimagining how we literally live our lives on a daily basis. How many of us have outsourced our short-term memory to this technology company based in Mountain View? It's remarkable. So these companies, they also have a role to play here. And I think, you know, the Silicon Valley culture being as it as it is, for many years, these companies were purely competitors, saw their worlds as zero-sum games in which if one side, if one company won, others had to lose. Increasingly, I think they realize we actually live in a shared society. So not only is it not a zero-sum game between each other, they have a vested interest in making sure that we have a rising tide Mm -hmm. that lifts all boats, business and government, and the civil society that we live in. And I'm encouraged by the fact that from Airbnb to Pinterest to the others who participated in the summit, to the way that we've seen some recent important improvements that companies are finally beginning to realize. And whether it's they're doing it because they're afraid of regulation, or they're doing it because they're inspired by their better angels, or they're doing it because they've had a personal experience, whatever is the catalyst, I don't really care. What I care about is what's the end state. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the end state will be social media platforms and an internet more generally that make sure that all of its users feel safe and secure, not vulnerable um, to the kind of trolling and the kind of terror which you experience and so many others have, but instead, again, safe and secure in their own identities in the space where they should be free to be themselves. The ADL plays a huge role
1: in this country's work against extremism. It is easy to focus on their work and their victories, but the real question really is where we are. Everyone seems to be losing sleep nowadays. I gave a passing thought to naming this podcast 4am for that reason. So I wanted to ask Jonathan, what keeps him up at night?
0: What keeps me up at night? Probably two things. Number one, I worry about the terror incident fueled by extremism and hate. You know, we see terror events and we become somewhat accustomed to them happening around the world, but it's deeply frightening to see them happening here at home, particularly when extremism is the prompt for it because that just augurs very ill for society and it's a reflection that we haven't done what we need to, as we were discussing before, to address and really tackle this issue to the ground. So number one, I worry about a kind of a, a mass shooting or an act of violence prompted by extremism. And then secondly, I worry about the ongoing impact of the more subtle kind of extremism that's penetrating our political conversation, where we have people at the highest levels who are literally seem more intent on dividing our country and segregating communities rather than uniting our country and unifying communities. And that degradation of the public conversation, I think the 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 damaging of norms it doesn't happen overnight but it happens over time like water on stone and I worry a great deal about if we don't get our arms around this and start to turn things around that the damage could be could be if not lasting very difficult to turn back so both those things worry me a great deal because I think not just about the world we're living in today Mike but what we're leaving to our children and our grandchildren and you know, it's on us to get this figured out. So we make sure that we leave the world a little better off for them who will inherit it.
1: Are you an optimist or a pessimist about American democracy's ability to handle this homegrown threat of extremism?
0: Well, that's that question is easy for me, Mike. I'm absolutely an optimist. Look, mm-hmm. some of us might forget that just a few decades ago, there were demonstrations against the Vietnam War and police were shooting protesters in the back, unarmed protesters fleeing from the Mm. scene in the back. And some may remember that around the same era, there were riots in the streets after Dr. King was assassinated, and entire cities burned to the ground. You know, decades before that, the dawn of the 20th century, as the labor movement was taking hold, there were literally riots in the streets, people being bludgeoned to death, by law enforcement, as well as by kind of bosses who are trying to control pools of labor and populations and whatnot. And we had a civil war just a few decades before that. That was still the bloodiest conflict in the history of the United States. Over 240-some-odd years, this country has come so far. You know, our present isn't that far from the past. And we can look back to how we have overcome other periods of turmoil, other extraordinary stresses, other kind of moments that literally shook this country to the core, and yet our democratic institutions and our civic capability has been so resilient that we have learned from, bounced back from those very uh, hard times. I believe it is woven into the DNA of our democracy. It is literally encoded into our being that this country can work through these most challenging experiences and come out on the other side smarter and stronger for it, but make no mistake, it will not happen on its own. Again, the natural state of affairs, if you let that curve go, it will. the curve will move off, you know, and entropy will prevail. It takes people of good faith, people across the political spectrum, people across the socioeconomic divide, people across kind of geographic boundaries, people across lines of faith and race and national origin and sexual orientation, and every other kind of frame to grab that curve with both hands and bend it and bend it together. And if we do that, Mike, I think we're capable of extraordinary things, including overcoming extremism.
1: Hmm. Very powerful. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Greenblatt.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Jonathan Greenblatt is the national director and CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBCUniversal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzik. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear and Elliot composed and produced the musical interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer.